Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Munya Chawawa. Munya is a British Zimbabwean satirist who rose to fame with DIY video sketches when he couldn't get a job in front of the camera. He's now part of a new generation of content creators who are finding their own audiences using YouTube and social media. We first met in 2017 when Munya snuck into the ITN building to interview me about Storms' debut album. That memorable encounter became Munya's first ever viral video, and he's since amassed millions of followers with his witty takes on politics, culture, and the royal family. If there's something that Munya wants to do, nothing will stop him. And as he prepares for his first comedy tour, Munya tells me about his career vision board and his plans to sell out the O2 within the next five years. I hope you enjoy it. Munya, you were born in Derby. Yeah. You spent your childhood in Zimbabwe, and it was a very happy one. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what young Munya Chihuahua was like? Oof, young Munya Chihuahua, baby, wow. You know what? All the times I've tried to find myself as an adult, Everyone always points me back to Zimmunya. That's what they call it, Zimmunya. Because Zimmunya was Jack the Lad. Now, Jack's not a very common name in Zimbabwe, so I was more like, you know, Tukunda the Lad, whatever the Zim equivalent is. But John, I was living, man. As a kid, you just want adventure. Yeah, you want to do the things that you see in the movies. Imagine you step out of the plane, four years old, into Zimbabwe, and the sun is just blasting. So first of all, you know, I'm going to be able to play outside all day, every day. That's the first thing you know. Second thing, there's no rules. There's no health and safety. You know, here in England, if you sharpen your pencil, you've got to wear like sort of construction goggles and a helmet. In Zimbabwe, if you want to climb a tree, you climb a tree. If you want to jump out a tree, you jump out a tree. You know, I remember like one of the first things I did was I'd seen people bungee jump on TV and I just climbed in a tree with a rope, not a bungee rope, just a rope, tied it around my stomach and just jumped out the tree. Oh my God. (laughs) 
nearly split myself in half. But do you know what? I had to learn some way. So to boil that down, I would say Munya in Zimbabwe was just full of adventure. Everything was possible. The world felt like this huge jungle that was just there to explore. And I think as a result, I was very free-spirited and I was my... Yeah, still to this day, I'd say I was my best self in Zimbabwe. Mm. That's what made it so great. You first discovered that you enjoyed being in front of a camera mm. in sending those videos to your grandparents in Derby. Yeah. Is this your origin story, discovering that you loved making people laugh? I like to think so. You know, you watch... Did they laugh? Well, my grandparents, I think a lot of the time, thought, what has possessed this small <laughs> child... But you watch a Marvel movie and you watch Spider-Man get bitten by a radioactive spider. You see Bruce Wayne like he loses his parents and therefore he becomes Batman. For me, it was just, I don't know if I would make a very good Marvel film because my origin story is I pulled a Mooney on camera, saw my parents laugh and decided, oh, I'm going to do more of these. And from time to time, I'll probably tell some jokes as well. And that's where my love of being on camera started. You're, you're completely right in saying that that sort of classical conditioning, that sort of Pavlov's dog of doing something funny on camera, seeing a room light up. I found a reward in that. And I imagine it planted the seeds of me wanting to do it now. Because remember, I didn't go straight into comedy. In fact, I never even wanted to do comedy. I just wanted to be a presenter. My first viral video, John, was with you. <laughs> no, come on. No, no, I don't know if you remember it. I sat you down. I wangled my way into ITN and I said, can I get Jon Snow, please, to review Stormzy's album? Oh, yes. Do you remember that? I vaguely? do. I'd never heard of Stormzy until that happened. <laughs> I, snuck out, I snuck into ITN and I had a friend who worked there and she got me you on your lunch break and I got you to review Stormzy's album. And that was the first viral video I ever did. And I wasn't even a comedian. I was just a presenter. I was a radio presenter. So some way or another, that child connection of you know being on camera and making people laugh wormed its way back into my life. I'd wanted to be a presenter, sidetracked into comedy, and it's almost like that reignited that memory I had of making people laugh, and that's how I sort of stumbled back into comedy. It's so <laughs> lovely to see you again after all these years. Isn't it? That's, yeah. that, that's why it's such a full circle moment for me. I interviewed you about Stormzy. You're interviewing me about pulling Moonies on camera. That is what I call a full circle. Now, when you were 11, you moved back to England from... Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Did your parents tell you the real reason for having to come back? Well, you know, this is the reason that I did the documentary, which I completed last year. So it was for Channel 4. It's called How to Survive a Dictator. Tried to go back to Zimbabwe. Pretty much got, you know, banned from Zimbabwe. I mean, I was banned from filming, but same thing. And I went back there to just try and figure out why did we have to leave? Because of that documentary, I found out, and also because of the conversation that came after it with my parents, it was a simple matter of, it was tough to survive there, economically. You know, if you're walking into a shop and you're having to pay seven figures for a loaf of bread, there's a problem, you know. Then you've got school fees, water being cut out, electricity being cut out. Do you remember the hysteria when they said that there might be blackouts here in England? Hmm. I think it was between 4 and 7 p.m. People were losing their minds. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here thinking, that's, that's light work. You know, I remember, John, there was a time that uh, we'd have no electricity for days. And my favourite entertainment was watching moths fly around candles. And like the golden moment, like the crescendo, which only ever happened once, was this moth was flying towards the candle, flew through the candle, set ablaze, and basically crash-landed into the table. And I was like, Michael Bay could never. 
Amazing. Did filming your documentary about Mugabe for mm. Channel 4 kind of fill in the gaps? It explained a man whom you know, I didn't understand. You know, what I came to realise is that there's a reason that there's a saying, there's two sides to every story. And I can understand how it was an emotional journey for anyone living in Zimbabwe to have gained independence and it was such a, a bright future. And then obviously, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so you get all the byproducts of that. But yeah, when I came away from the documentary, I came away knowing what the political situation was at the time we left. I understood the scale of the paranoia, um, the economic difficulties, and also just the sheer uncertainty over how bad things could get. So in retrospect, when I see how things ended, you know, I am glad we left when we left. And you've got to remember, like, you know, some people who left Zimbabwe, you know, it was almost like a, a traitorous act because we needed you. We want, you know, mm. there was a, they call it the brain drain when, when all the skill left. As a kid, I didn't have much say in that. But I'm happy to have gone back to understand a little bit more about why my parents did what they did. Because as far as I was concerned, I was angry that I'd just been plucked out of this life I was really enjoying and then sort of plonked into some sort of um, grey street in Norwich. But now I understand. So I got, a bit of, I got a lot of closure from that. Do you remember your first impressions of England? I mean, to find yourself in a quite unpronounceable village called Framingham Piggott. Mm. So, when we arrived in Norwich for the first time, we were in a, I think you call it a terrace house, where you're sort of sandwiched between loads of houses. You mm. can hear everyone's business. Quite unlike Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Next door, we had definitely drug dealers. I didn't even know what drugs were at the time. I mean, I still don't, John, to be honest. Of course, I recognise that. <laughs> but, um, An innocent abroad. We were next to some drug dealers and you could hear shouting and banging. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this place? I really didn't understand it. The only reason I kept saying is because when we moved in, there was this computer which had been left in my room. And I still really don't know the reason for this, but everything on the computer had been wiped except for all of Enrique Iglesias' albums. You remember that guy? <laughs> I, I can, do. I can be a hero baby, that one. Oh, I, and I know. You, I know you sing those slow jams in the shower, don't you, John? <laughs> <laughs> so basically I heard that and I was like, cool, well, this is just going to have to get me through. So I'd listen to Enrique and that would get me through. Anyway, one day my mum was like, there's a village in Norwich and the guy there, he is looking for you know, someone to work for him. And as a perk of the job, you're able to live in the village for reduced rent. Even though the pay's not that good, at least you get reduced rent. So it's living in the middle of nowhere versus living in this horrible house where, we, you know, my parents are literally worried about us coming home from school. So naturally we picked there. I was resisting it. I was like, Mum, there is no one around here. There's not even a street light to make friends with. But she was like, look, we've got to do it. I remember the first night we got there. So we were moving stuff after my parents finished work. So it was about five, six. We get in the house now. We've moved all the stuff in. It's pitch black. There's no streetlights. You can't see anything around the house. So we get in the car, and my dad tries to start the car. It's going, boom, doesn't start. So he goes, you know what? I'm going to have to walk to the bus stop. Now, this is one of them places where finding a bus stop is almost like finding an asteroid. So I remember walking in the dark down the world's longest lane, and I could hear every single animal. I don't know if you heard about the Norfolk Panther, John, but that night... Trust me, the Norfolk Panther was watching us. Not of late. Big, trust me, that cat's out there. <laughs> I could hear all sorts of creaks and snaps, scuttles of claws, and we just had to walk through this village in the pitch black. Are you black. serious? I'm being deadly serious. 
We could hear things running up behind us, turn around, running stops, Karen walking. Next thing you know, it's in the bush. From that day onwards, I knew this is going to be tough. And it wasn't just the nighttime that was scary, it was the daytime. See, when people would drive past me when I was living in Framingham Piggott, they would stare at me in a way I was thinking, am I actually like a body double of Idris Elba? Because the way that these people are staring at me, like there's either something amazing or something terrifying about me, I just keep getting home, look in the mirror and think, what is it? Now, of course, I realise if you were anything but white in Framingham Piggott, you were the main attraction. Or, you know, you was up to no good. You were the panther. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I was the Norfolk panther. <laughs> you know, I remember one time um, I really wanted to do psychology. And my mum would get this psychology magazine and I'd nick it and read it on the way to school. I remember once walking past this uh, neighbour of ours and he saw me reading this magazine and he went, he like, shook his head. He was like, what are you doing there, boy? Yeah, are you reading a porno? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm just reading about the intricacies of cognitive dissonance. But <laughs> if it's all the same to you. To end up at Framlingham Piggott. <laughs> oh, man, I mean, you know, it was a weird time. Um, I can hear you're being protective of the good people of Framlingham Piggott. Oh, no, 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 no. That, it was fantastic comedic inspiration. You know, that it's there that I discovered terms such as, you know, this thing called, is it called petit fours? You After a meal, they give you little chocolates. Oh, petit fours. Yeah, foie gras. Huh? You know what that is? Yeah, yeah stuffing a goose until it basically explodes and then serving it. (laughs) I didn't know what these kind of things were. Mm. But you're right in saying it alerted me to a whole different world. Because when I moved to London, I thought, cool, where's the foie gras or whatever? And you're like, wait a minute. This is something that only a very small section of society Mm. does. What does everyone else do? And then you realise you see either people in poverty or you see people struggling to make ends meet and stuff. And that made me realise, wow, you know, there's a real kind of rift in class, in social status... And that's the, those are the kind of things I try and build into my uh, comedy because I've been able to experience both. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't eating foie gras. I was just serving it in a restaurant. You know, I, I worked in a silver service establishment, which when the Queen visited Norwich, they were the ones who catered for her. And get this, John, on the day that she was there, I was told not to work. Oh, <laughs> no. They didn't feel so good about seeing a mixed race Zimbabwean with a mohawk approaching the Queen with a butter knife. (laughs) (laughs) It was too much of a risk. The snipers were trigger happy. But listen, these beginnings in Norfolk Mm. must have had you pining to go home. Home to Zimbabwe. Mm. What was most difficult about it was home wasn't home anymore because my friends had gone. All my my old girlfriends had left. Mm. So if I did go back to Zim, there's no one there for me. And that's what made it tough. If I was like, cool, I can go back to Zim and in a second life would be back to as good as it was, fine. Mm. But knowing I don't like the life here and if I go back to Zim, it's not even my old life anymore. Like, I don't have a good life to go Mm. back to. Mm. You know, that was one of the the saddest parts of it. Thinking, Mm. cool, where is home going to be? It's interesting. You were very studious and you threw yourself into extracurricular activities, we could call them. You found yourself knocked back from presenting jobs. Did you ever consider following the writer-producer path? Or was your determination to be on screen, Mm. nothing less? Yeah. If there's something I want to do, nothing will stop me. Absolutely nothing. No one. There's not a word you can say to me that will stop me. You know, as recently as last year, we made a YouTube show called Race Around Britain became the first YouTube show, to my knowledge, to be nominated for BAFTA, mm. right? We're up against Mo Gilligan, 
Graham Norton, Romish Ranganathan. And we lose out on the BAFTA. Now, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I really thought this was the moment. But one day, I'll win a BAFTA. Even if it's on my deathbed at the age of 97, probably by which point Elon Musk will have created some sort of reversing time machine. But I waited till I was 97. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what it's sweeter, but I, I just know it will happen. So when I came into London, or you know, even in Norwich, I would ferociously pursue any presenting opportunities. I would go into like bakeries and I would say to them, guys, please, can I make you a promotional video? I'll just film the cakes. I'll do like an interview with one of your chefs. Mm. Anywhere I could go, John, trust me, I was there. Snuck into Latitude Festival, pretending to be the BBC, to film this character I had called Raving Rob. There was just nothing that would stop me. So when I then moved to this television station, this is how the journey started. There was a, a competition to become a backstage vlogger for this music channel. And you had to win by public vote. So when I entered this competition, I got down to the final four and for the for a week straight, day and night, I was awake voting because you could vote as many times as possible. So I had all my friends, we were up day and night. We took it in shifts to vote. Finally got the job. I was like, this is it. This is my big break. The prize was a three pound tripod at best <laughs> and a camera that I swear to God they were using in World War II. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what am I meant to do? So I emailed them. I said, guys, th this opportunity is amazing, but I, I wonder, could I do more? Like maybe I could come to the office and do some work, whatever. And the lady who'd organised the competition, she came back and she copied in all the bosses and she said, hi, Munya, we're sorry that this opportunity isn't enough for you, but hopefully, da 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 So I'm thinking, wow, she's proper stitched me up here. I'm never going to get my mm. shot. And there's one guy at that station who saw me once walk into the office and I said hello to everyone and that was it. And he was like, I like this guy. I'm going to get him in for a screen test. Came for the screen test, completely flopped it, John. You see you, yeah, you do Channel 4 News. You've got this nice auto cue. You see mm. every word perfectly. I had a, someone underneath holding an iPad. Oh, my God. Flapping their fingers. Hopeless. So I botched it. Ooh. Anyway, I thought... Who wouldn't? I thought this is the end for me. But I stayed persistent and the guy kept getting me in. And little bit by little, I started to do one-off shows, one-off shows, mm. one-off shows. Eventually, he said to me, cool, I'm going to put you forward for one of the bigger shows. And they saw me and they went, oh, okay, you can kind of present, but you haven't got any followers. So maybe you can write. So I thought to myself, God, I don't know how to write. But what I did is I went back home and I started to write my own weekly satirical show, which I'd post on Twitter. Maybe only 10 people saw each episode. And then from there, I just faked it until I made it as a writer. And that's what eventually got me to the point where I could write for a main TV show and then one day present it. Then along comes YouTube. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's been the transformational arrival for people such as you were? Mm -hmm. YouTube and social media, it allows anyone to do anything. I agree with that. If you get a no from one of the head commissioners or the channel execs or whatever, you could go ahead and make that show anyway for yourself. Mm -hmm. Some version of it on social media. Mm -hmm. The only thing I will say is, John, is that so many of my no's helped me to create my yes. And so in a way, I really hope that like the new gen, you, know, you could be a kid and make your own show on YouTube. I think it's good to still go through those experiences which are going to test your craft. It's still good to, you know, receive no's. I hope young listeners are marking this because that yeah. is such a crucial, crucial piece of advice. Mm -hmm. For real. 
because those no's really make you dig deep. Mm. Uh, they make you question yourself. They make you question whether you really do want it. Mm. And it's from within that you can find where your true passion lies mm. and just how far you're mm. willing to go to, to get the thing that you want. So what I'm saying is, although everything is at our fingertips now, don't be afraid to put yourself into positions where you might get rejected. Because I think as a, a creative, the true definition of creativity is how do you work up from your rejections, not how do you continue to coast from your successes. You're making me feel a bad boy. <laughs> you know, there was a posh boy. My cousin, Peter Snow, was already established in the BBC and the mm. rest of it. And I go along to ITN and they say, oh, yeah, we'll have you. Yeah. I didn't have to do anything. I mean... They just say, oh, well, he'll be okay. The, the mm. other one was all right. Yeah. Whereas you were absolutely having to go it all yourself. John, I feel a, a guilty man. No, but look, it's a, it's a conversation that even popped off over Christmas. They were calling them Nepo babies. So, you know, the, the byproducts of nepotism. Mm. Your dad's a famous actor. Your mum's a famous, you know, singer. Life should really be easier for you. And for example, when I have kids, you know, what will the impact of what I achieve in my career be? And the only thing I can say is, look, you know, my kid, when it pops out, can't really choose who mm -hmm. their parents were. But I will do my very best to instill the work ethics that I had. Maybe not to the extreme, because, you know, I don't want my child to be up until 2 a.m. writing a rap about Liz Truss. My head's in a spin. Little <laughs> chihuahuas running around the house. <laughs> but I will do the best of my ability to make sure that, you know, hard work is at the, the foundation of everything. Because... Um, I think sometimes actually as a creative, like just thrashing out ideas and, you know, trying and failing, that's actually the best part. Mm. People th sometimes make out that's the sort of icky bit that you just try and push through, but that's the joy of it. You know, everyone's different. Everyone has their own path and everyone gets brought into the game differently. For me personally, working hard was the way I could get to what I wanted to do. Mentioning YouTube, you won an award for your series Race Around Britain, mm -hmm. which really distills the warmth of your approach tackling a topic you described as bum-clenching. <laughs> you said you want to talk to your audience like mm. you would talk to your grandma. Mm. Is that the key? Yeah, for sure. You know, John, I always ask this question. I want to see what you think about this before I answer you. Ooh. Do you think there's more good in the world or more bad in the world? I think there's more good in the world. You sure? I am sure. Cool. So if that's the case, then I need to go off the presumption that a lot of racial tension and a lot of racial misunderstandings. If we are going to assume that there's more good in the world, I need to assume that some of that doesn't come from a malicious place. Mm. But it still comes from a, a place which needs to be challenged. Definitely. So that's why I use the, the grandparent analogy. Mm. I think many people can relate to being around a grandparent who says something that's just a little bit off-key. And you think in that moment, okay, is this lady who's been slipping in £20 into my birthday card since I was a child actually a seething racist <laughs> because it's hard to see somebody who loves you so unconditionally as harboring such beliefs and then you ask yourself maybe that's not the case maybe it's just going grandma or granddad you see that word you just used if someone used it against me how would you feel and it's suddenly like this taken aback and going oh i'd hate for that actually and that's it in that short interaction with no need to sort of you know aggressively confront or whatever you've helped to sort of shift someone's paradigm so when we made that series i did want to approach it from the perspective of people are good Sometimes it's just about reframing something that they've thought their entire lives and showing them a different perspective. I think you're absolutely right. And if people can't grab hold of that, we're in a bad place. Well, you see, when the Black Lives Matter movement was really booming a couple of years back, mm. you know, when we, we, we would see it everywhere. 
my whole thing was to say, look, this is my own personal perspective. So, you know, it might be overly reductionist, but it's what works for me. Mm. Say you've got a third of people who completely understand the cause and the movement and the issues, and they want to ally with that as much as they can. Mm. Then you've got a middle ground who kind of understand and want to do the right thing, but just aren't entirely sure what the facts are or they just need a little bit of convincing either way. Mm. And then you've got a group of people who are like, I don't believe it. I don't believe there's any such thing as discrimination, prejudice, and it's all just a farce. Cool. I'm not trying to talk to those people. If you've made your mind up, I'm not here to change your mind. Mm. I'm only here to put things in front of people who maybe just need that one piece of evidence or that one moment of someone sitting down and explaining it to them to then go, I finally understand, I get it. And I, and I want to support this or I want to be more empathetic. Mm. So I feel like a lot of the things I'm doing, you know, I'm not here to try and change people's static beliefs or their immovable beliefs. I'm here maybe just to provide a bigger picture for people who either don't have enough information or want to know more and are open-minded enough to, to hearing something they've not heard before. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. 
the 2022 mixed race King Charles, who eerily looks like Colonel Sanders from KFC. You know, so be it. Why was the casting director drawn to in the first place, do you think? To be fair, you know, I've seen people pipe up on Twitter, oh, this diversity gone mad, Linda. There's no reason for it. <laughs> but check my Instagram videos from a year back, two years back. I've been portraying Prince Charles for a long time. I've done quite a few satirical sketches about the royal family embodying Prince Charles. So I actually think, in addition to the fact they needed some musicality to the performance, if you were to look across the landscape of sketch comedians who were kind of portraying mm. the royals, Kieran's a fantastic one, but I'm not sure how many others there were. So maybe, you know, it was a small pool and I got picked from it. I can let the listener know that I have actually worked with you. Mm. But you've said that you are an introvert. And I have to challenge that because I've never met a smaller extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> Is it only in certain social situations? or mm. I mean, are you serious? I'm being deadly serious. I can't understand how this guy at the microphone who's... Mm crack jokes all the way through my very serious interview, um, <laughs> sees himself in some way as an introvert. Look, you know what, John? There's so many things that contribute to my me defining myself as an introvert that I just have to paste over to be a performer. First of all, let's think about this. If you reference my sketches and you say, yeah, well, I see you, you know, thrusting and dancing around in your sketches, that's not very introvert. Cool. When I make those sketches, I'm just at home, mm. in my room. Mm. Mm. The only person there is my camera. Mm. I can watch it back as many times as I want until I get the perfect portrayal. Number two, when I perform to people, if I do, you know, John, I mean, last year, I had never done stand-up mm. and I wanted to get into it bit by bit. An artist I love in America called Thundercat said, hey man, I've seen your sketches, I love your sketches. I'm coming to perform at the O2 in Brixton. Can you open up for me? 25 minutes of stand-up. 5,000 people. I'm on holiday at the time. And I think to myself, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to let the crippling fear of doing this make me say no? And I was like, I can't. It's not even in my programming. I can't say no. Got home, wrote the thing in three days. Next thing you know, I'm running out in front of 25,000 people doing material I've never tested. Now, look, I ain't saying it's the funniest thing that ever touched planet Earth, but it went well. You know, people were so lovely about mm -hmm. it. And I thought in that moment, I, I wanted to just run home. Mm. But for some reason, I have this innate mechanism that just pushes me out and goes, deal with, just deal with it. <laughs> we'll think so about it later. Have you reached a point that you find it as rewarding and easy as making your own videos, mm. going and doing stand-up? Mm, not yet. But that's why I want to work on it this year. I want to take on that journey. Oh, I'm going to come along and see. Oh, he's on a journey. <laughs> I wonder how far he's got. <laughs> <laughs> My point is that there are many things uh, that you can do to disguise your introversion. Whether that's the right thing to do or not, I don't know. But I think basically, you know, when I'm around people, when I'm not performing, there's so much stuff that I'm considering. You know, there's so much stuff that makes me uncertain about myself. You know, I grew up in Zim. I had to quickly move. I had mm. a complete different culture shift. Mm. I'm mixed race. My mum's white. My dad's black. Mm. You know, there's constantly a conversation about code switching mm. there. You're always asking to yourself, okay, cool. Wh who actually am I? Because I'm a performer, then I'm quiet. Mm. I'm black, then I'm white. I'm Zimbabwean, mm. then I'm English. And when you're constantly between these fluctuations, it makes your identity very murky. If I said to you, Jon Snow, who are you? You could say... I'm from here, my parents are from here, 
I do this, and and this is who I am. I'm an upper class snob. <laughs> I don't want to say it, <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm looking truth. Mm. You, you're in a nice place. Mm-hmm. You lived in the country of your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. You know what it is. You can remember it very vividly, and you've been there since. There are lots of ways in which you're well provided for. I but the thing that you know we talk about cultural differences, mm-hmm. culture shock. You know, in psychology, we talk about collectivist societies and individualistic societies. In Zimbabwe, and I've referenced this many times, in Zimbabwe, when you were in class and the teacher asked a question, everyone's hand would shoot up. We used to get, you know how we used to get detentions? We used to get detentions because when we were hands up, we would click for the teacher because <laughs> we were so desperate to answer the question. If you were answering questions in class, you were the guy or you were the girl. You know, you were the talk of the town. Man, so and so so smart. He got the badge for academics. He's head boy. He's house captain. Those were our ideas of status achievement. You come to England, you put your hand up. It's like you've committed a war crime. You know, everyone looks at you. First week of school in England, I'm hearing things I've never heard before. You're a boffin. Thinking, what's a boffin? And the effect that that has is the things that you were rewarded for, the things that you valued, mm. and the things that you thought were good in one place you suddenly have to completely flip on its head and go, right, I shouldn't perform well in school. I shouldn't want to express my desire to learn. So what do you do in a situation where the things that I've given you your sense of self and confidence Mm. are the things that you get chastised for in another place? You know, I'm not complaining about the life I had because I live in Zimbabwe and I've had some really great experiences in England. But as any human mind looking to find a sense of, you know, being anchored when you're going through so many layers of change and and trying to configure codes and stuff, it can just be confusing. We're on the threshold of a a new stage in your uh, Mm. experience. Yeah. Are you excited about this tour, this first ever tour? Well, I'll be doing a stand-up comedy tour Mm -hmm. from October around the UK. Mm. And um, I think it's exciting because a lot of the time we like to compartmentalise different comedians. It's like, oh, you know, you do stuff online, you do stuff on Twitter, Instagram... You're a stand-up. You know, I really admire stand-up. I think it's an introvert's worst nightmare, but that is one of the things that makes it most appealing. And I just want to explore this thing they call comedy. You know, I want to squeeze every last drop out of it. So when I say I'm going into stand-up, I'm not talking about rocking up on the stage in October and being like, yep, thousands of people, this is how they do it. I'm talking about hitting those tiny clubs where you got, Guys playing darts in the corner, mm-hmm. someone loudly eating pistachios, not really listening to what you're saying. Like, I'm ready to have my baptism of fire because that's the only way I know how to do things. You know, I, w- I want to learn the craft. And I, I, I would say in the next five years, yeah, call it five, on a good day three, I want to sell out the O2. How crazy would that be? Wow. Would you come to that? Uh, definitely. Okay, make sure you mark it in your diary because I know you're a busy guy. You pay for the ticket. Oh, yeah, you can come for free, man. You have for <laughs> champagne on tap, magnums on tap. <laughs> God, lummy. What a thought. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I pinky promise you. After this, I pinky promise you. What, you think it'll take a couple of years? Uh, I'd say three, between three to five years. What a wonderful ambition. Yeah, why not? But there's no moment when you can say, hang on a minute, I'll do that one again. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, John, by the time it comes around, I won't need to. But there's something else I wonder. Have you ever thought of doing a run in Zim? Own comedy. Mm. Oh, yeah, when they let me back in. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, sure. won't they let you in? I don't think so. Look, John, tell me this. If you make a documentary about the current and ex-president of indeed, Zimbabwe, indeed. do you think it's a wise move to go back? Possibly not. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> not if you want to leave again. Exactly. <laughs> wow. 
You worked with The Rock, a childhood hero. Is this mm. the biggest pinch yourself moment of your career so far? I mean, apart from this, yeah. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I was just, Rock, uh, I'm just a creep. Just... <laughs> Look, long story short, John, as a kid, I used to love watching sweaty, muscly guys slam each other onto a mat, yeah? Mm. So now, uh, recently I did a video with The Rock and he was, it was just legendary. Mm. I, in fact, let me ask you this. Who have you interviewed that you thought to yourself, my God, I cannot believe this is happening in a good way? Nelson Mandela. There you go. That was my Nelson Mandela moment. And mm. to be honest with you, they're pretty much the same people. <laughs> uh, have you made a vision board for 2023? Yeah. What else do you want to tick off this year? It seems to me your hands are pretty full already. Mm -hmm. So a vision board, mm. uh, at least the way I do it, is a collection of pictures mm. and words that you put in a place you can see quite frequently mm. that inspire you or push you to achieve more. So it's in the downstairs loo. Oh, yeah. Constant. I mean, that's where I spend 95% of my time. Um, I love the fact you presume I've got it downstairs. <laughs> You're still talking I with that channel foreman. Me <laughs> my vision board um, is something that has uh, powered me through every year I've had. There was a time that my vision board was like A4, a few pictures of me presenting or a few pictures of me meeting so-and-so. And then I get to the end of the year and I'd look at it and I'd be like, whoa, I did that stuff. Should I keep the same pictures? No, no, I have to change it. Now the vision board is huge. Mm. And as opposed to it being stuff that's happened that I'm really proud of or stuff that was great, it's now stuff that almost feels too far to touch. Because why not? You know, even the thing I mentioned to you about doing a sold-out tour at the O2, mm. that's got to be on there because, yeah, it might seem far away, but that's what gets me up and out. I will always want to run further or achieve more. Like, I'm sure there is a point where it's quite good to just sit back and appreciate what you've done, but I don't really feel ready for that yet. So some of the things on there, you've got the arena tour. I'd love to do more acting. You see people like Daniel Kaluuya, who is just doing incredible things, and you see really fantastic black British actors. And I think, you know, why not? If I can learn the skills, that would be an amazing thing to do. I'd love to have like a a, a really sort of, legacy British television show. You know, you talk about Brass Eye, The Daily Show, 11 o'clock show, what Trevor Noah's doing. And, you know, I think to myself, I want a piece of that. Now, I don't know the how, because if you said to me, cool, well, how are you going to do that? I don't know. All I know is when I look at those pictures, I get those butterflies that I'm sure you get before a big report. And that's the feeling I want to wake up with every morning. Inspiringly ambitious. <laughs> yeah. That's how I sum you up. What would, what would your vision board have on it? My vision board would have on it... It doesn't have to be work achievements. It can be anything. Well, I, I regard myself as a very lucky man to have mm -hmm. had a very good life. I'd like to be able to give back a certain amount. Mm. Um, ambition. Mm. Funnily enough, I used to uh, help Prince Charles mm. with, with the uh, Prince's Trust business in, oh, the, yeah. in the early days. I thought maybe one day mm. I could get the first ever interview with a king. Wow. Hey, well, <laughs> you've got one version of Prince Charles here. You'll do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank I, you. I'll see if I can pull some strings. Munya, you're a joy to talk to and talk with. It's not an interview. It's just an event. It's two lads kicking back, bantering, as it always has been. And John, wait a minute before you sign off, because you know you're trying to get out of this easy. No, no. Um, I want more. How 
how is the rapping thing going? Because you see, you're very smart. You didn't tell everyone how we actually know each other. But I, I, I told her to keep a secret. You tell people how you think. No, you tell them. Okay, I'll tell them. In IT, and then I'll tell you whether it's true or not. Right. When we worked in ITN, mm -hmm. one of the ceilings collapsed, which meant you guys, Channel 4 News, had to work on my floor. Mm -hmm. And somehow, somewhere, you ended up sitting next to me. Now, I had a habit of not really doing any work, <laughs> but creating the illusion of doing work. So much so that before you sat next to me, I had a skeleton sat next to me, like an actual biological skeleton that we'd found in the props cupboard. Mm -hmm. I think we called it like Ralph or something. So you replace Ralph, and then before I know it, I'm teaching you grime every morning as <laughs> part of our routine before you go off and pretend to care about politics on the news. <laughs> oh, some secrets are too good to, Isn't to it? blow. <laughs> but, you know, I think it was great for me because... You know, I'd always seen you, when I was doing A-level politics, I would always see you reading the news so stern. But I'd think to myself, see this guy, he's wearing all these jazzy ties and socks. I was thinking, he must have a personality. And then, you know, as soon as I sat next to you, I realised, no, 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 Jon Snow's he's a lad. You know, he's a Bantasaurus Rex. So I'm happy we got to share that experience. I think it was mutual. Yeah, for sure, man. We, 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 we set ITN alight, for sure. I think very few straight-laced, uh, serious newscasters, authoritative people like me, mm. have ever had the experience of sitting next to somebody like you <laughs> and learning Thanks. as much as I did. Yeah, well, like you said, it's mutual, man. Great talking to you. You too, John. That was Munya Chihuahua, my new BFF, best friend forever. He taught me that. He's got a great future ahead of him, and I look forward to seeing him perform his comedy at the O2. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. My BFF. <laughs> do, you, wait, do, you know, do you know what BFF is? BFF, the big... No, no, no. No. I mean, I wish. I'm five foot seven, so... BFF is best friend forever. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just as well I'm not standing up. <laughs> Six foot four. You'd be the BFG. BFG. Big friendly gangster. <laughs>